Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall. And today, I have Mena Hensemans back on the show. He hasn't been on for a few months. We get a bit of an update on what's going on on his end. We talk about his new book about self-control that's coming out. Really interesting stuff. And we answer your questions, of course. So guys, I know you're going to really enjoy this. And I just wanted to remind you guys of a book that we sell. And that is our ultimate guide to bodybuilding. And if you are thinking about doing a contest prep, I definitely recommend you check this one out. We talk about contest prep a lot. There's a lot of details that go into it. And we put a lot of love into this along with the guys at JPS in Australia. So definitely have a look at that. Otherwise, enjoy the rest of the show. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall. And today I have Menno Henselmans back on the podcast. He was last on, actually, when this goes out, it might be even more time, probably four months when this goes out. But it was three months ago since uh, me and Menno chatted, or at least that last podcast was released. So probably <laughs> it's probably a similar time regardless. Uh, and I always like to just get a little bit of an update on the, the person, especially a lot of the people I talk to uh, lift themselves. And last time you were bulking. I don't know if you're still bulking. I imagine you might be or what's what's kind of going on in, in your In the end? meantime, I'm now bulking again. In the meantime, I've done a cut. And that actually, because last time you updated that, I think I actually managed to gain a little bit of muscle. And I think that's true. But it's a little less than, than I anticipated. I think it's like another pound. <laughs> Which that's is, good you know, in our books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If it's one pound a year, uh, I'll take that if we can do that 10 years. Yeah, you know? <laughs> for sure. How was your? How long was the cut out of interest? Um, not that long. Um, I did one week mini cut and then uh, five week, four week actual cuts. Only five weeks for okay. like months of bulking. Is your so, mini cut kind of defined as just like super aggressive then? It's it's pretty aggressive. I basically cut calorie intake in half, so yeah. I go from like four to two thousand. <laughs> but uh, my adapt my metabolism downgrades so fast that it's actually not that aggressive. I in a mini cut, I try to get one percent body weight loss per week, and that, that's about the max. Also, for most people, research indicates that that's it's pretty much the max you you want to lose even for a mini cut if you're lean to begin with. And I, I want to keep it a little bit less um, if I do longer than one week, like 07 percent max. Based on the right. Garfa studies, that seems about right also for my uh, results. And what you like to stay a bit leaner, don't you, Menno? You don't kind of let it yeah. go too too far out. You have yeah, like a, bit, a bit less, a bit less these days because okay. I'm, I'm kind of wondering like why. <laughs> and um, with bulking, I do notice it's uh, it's easier if you give yourself a bit more leeway. Yeah, and then I'm just focused on trying to eke out every pound of muscle I can get, and uh, yeah. I like it. And you I mean, still have apps all the time. Yeah, that's always nice. Uh, I was going to say, I think from memory, appetite becomes an issue for you in mass phases. Do you find the mini cut yeah. or the, the cut in general helps rebound it? Yeah. Does it last very long though? <laughs> I'm, I'm ba I've basically concluded that I should do more mini cuts. Right. Because my appetite also adjusts super rapidly. So the first month of booking is like party time. It's awesome. I can eat, I can eat like double and... Uh, still have the appetite and then a few months in becomes force feeding time and then six months in you're talking shakes and i'm like what am i doing yeah. <laughs> i know the feeling so no that's interesting because i know like mini cuts they're i don't know some, they're a bit controversial in some ways with some people they're just like oh you should just like mass for as long as you can and don't take time away from that but mm -hmm. if your appetite is 
kind of crushing you it can at least that's yeah. one one thing that it can definitely do amongst other things but um i won't kind of do a whole podcast now on mini cuts um mm-hmm. and something I else think, sorry go I on think the main i may think the main uh thing is that you don't want to switch too fast but if you're overall booking for long periods of time and you intersperse that with mini cuts that works really well but what does not work well is if you alternate rapidly basically i'd say yeah. mini cuts work well but mini bulks do not so also because bulking it's so much more important to find the energy surplus sweet spot like with cutting and that's also why i think at libitum cutting works much better and at libitum bulking barely works at all because when bulking is a natural trainee you have this tiny energy surplus like realistically how much muscle are you putting on in a month you know the net metabolizable energy surplus per day is so low that you're talking like a few percent off for an advanced trainee few percent of above maintenance like realistically if you want to do a truly lean in, in our case it may literally be one yeah. percent so that's pretty much within the margin of error of even using kitchen scales and yeah. <laughs> stuff so it becomes very important to if you want to do it lean to get optimal results in the long run to yeah really don't overeat but do make sure that you're an energy surplus because if we're at maintenance just nothing happens actually that I have something else I want to ask, but it leads into one of the questions that came in, which was, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of the term main gaining. Um, it, there's also gain-taining. It's kind of, mm-hmm. it, you, yeah. you know what it is by either of those words. And they're, they're essentially asking for your thoughts on it. So I guess you kind of gave them there, but I don't know if you want to expand upon like, I guess it's body yeah. recomposition in a sense, or like trying to gain muscle whilst eating at maintenance. It's funny because I, a lot of people think I like those approaches but I actually really don't. Like I'm a big fan of body recomposition and I tailor my programs to, to achieve that, but I mostly do that in energy deficit yeah. for people that can still gain muscle in energy deficit. Because I think, like I said, especially for an advanced trainee, you just nothing happens in maintenance. Like you have to push really hard to gain any muscle at all. And the maintenance is just, just nothing. I don't even think it's a matter of percentages. I think it's literally the matter of nothing versus something. And in energy deficit, if you're a novice, the energy deficit actually doesn't even halter, even hamper muscle growth that much. So you can basically lose fat and get the same results as with gain taining um, in terms of muscle growth. So I think like actually targeting maintenance rarely works. And I think also a lot of people that think they're at maintenance, they base that on the fact that their weight is stable, but they're actually recomping, right. which usually you see mostly in beginners. But I think uh, there's there's a twofold problem. Like, are you actually at energy maintenance? Because weight maintenance and energy maintenance are not necessarily the same thing. And, you know, is is that really optimal? Yeah, I think it's... When I see people who aren't in those usual categories of like taking time off or a novice and the people going for kind of body recomposition or eating at maintenance and trying to kind of gain and lose fat, what have you... I'm always like, if you could do it, you'd have to go out of your way to do all of the like, like dot your eyes, cross, sorry, yeah, dot your eyes, cross your T's. And like, if you were just in a surplus, you'd grow even more muscle. <laughs> it's like, you have to try so hard to even potentially get this thing. So why not mm-hmm. just like make your life a bit easier, quite a lot easier and give one of the most anabolic signals there is and like give yourself a surplus. I always think it's like cycling up, gaining muscles like cycling uphill. It's just, mm-hmm. it is just hard. Don't try and make it any yeah. harder 
losing fat, like you kind of alluded to, is like, it's so much simpler in many ways. And it's like cycling downhill. Not people will always argue against me because they're like, oh, being in a surplus is easier than being in a deficit. And I'm like, yeah, but the process <laughs> of mm. gaining muscle is much harder than the process of losing fat. Definitely. And I think in general for advanced trainees, you get to the point where thresholds effects become a lot more important than percentage optimization in a sense of, are you gaining muscle at all? You know, it's a lot of people, when they interpret research, they think, okay, so these things, they add 10% of muscle growth. Well, that's not really important. Well, for one, and then they have five of those things that they don't do, then, you know, it does actually add up. But I think a lot of people just end up at some point in their training at the point where they're just not gaining any muscle. So it's not the matter that if they, you know, if they would do things a bit more strictly, then they would gain a little bit more. It's just that makes a difference now between something and nothing. Yeah. I think a lot of people get stuck at that point. Yeah. It's, I think it, as you get more and more into it as well, and you age and like you have kids and like you have other responsibilities, it's like, I can't give what I need to, to kind of grow because it just becomes a little bit overwhelming. And I guess that's why, I don't know, there's a select few people that can manage to become like really advanced and maybe meet their genetic genetic potential if you even could most people don't get probably even that well they probably get close but not like i, I doubt many people actually kind of reach yeah. it yeah i do think that a lot, a lot of the time it's hard to establish these new habits and routines and because that's usually what it is right you have to make some lifestyle change but once you do it it is actually sustainable like a lot of things when you do three or four sets that really doesn't you know break the bank in terms of your mental effort across the week or uh, if you've learned to track your calories, it's not that hard anymore. If you have a meal plan, you know, those kind of things. Uh, so I do think it's, you can still get very good results, but um, having kids and stress and sleep deprivation, they, they definitely add up. Yeah. And actually that comes to the question I was going to start with was another thing that you've been working on. And I think we may have mentioned it last time was uh, your book. So the science mm -hmm. of self-control. And I was just looking over. I haven't picked up yet. It's in my Amazon basket. I'm just like, hmm. I want time to like read it. So I want to buy it and then actually give it the time because I was also reading the reviews over there, which I mean, they're all five out of five reviews so far. Hmm. And it was kind of just a, a sense of practical and well-researched, which I mean, is music to hmm. my ears. Like you want practical stuff from these sort of books. And obviously it's right. Menno, so it's going to be well-researched. So yeah, I, I don't know if you have any How's, how's it initially gone down? How's uh, the initial response been? Has it been good? Very good. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm very grateful for the feedback I've received and the people have written reviews. It's, uh, I'd say, a bit better than expected because I wasn't sure what would happen because the book is a bit more general lifestyle than just hardcore training and nutrition, which is yeah. the main thing I do, you know, for more intermediate plus trainees, really optimization. And the book is there's one the biggest chapter is about diet adherence which in itself is something i haven't talked about that much in part because i think there are a lot of lessons that you need some buy-in before i can tell you these things you know with clients i say them with in my pt course i say them if someone's at a lecture i tell people these things but there are some things that like on social media you tell them and they're just like eh, i don't like that <laughs> so you know the, the things of success like what would you what you just said basically like it's hard work like there are certain things you have to do and those generally don't translate that well to social media. So I think it's better resolved. Even for clients, I find that some things are better to say when the problem actually arises. Like you can tell people about appetite and the importance of fiber and yada, yada. And they're like, yeah, you know, uh, they're still eating mostly crap. But when they get <laughs> hungry, 
and you tell them about the importance of fiber, it hits home. Yeah. It's like my dad at some point said, because uh, I was worried about not learning taxation, like I studied economics and I didn't know anything about taxation and tax laws. And my dad said, you really don't have to pick up any courses for that because when it concerns your own money, you'll pick all of that up in one month rather than the three years of study that you'd otherwise devote to it on the hypotheticals. So I think it's, it's like that with diet adherence. When it actually gets hard, then you get interested. I think it that goes for quite a few things, even like um, like getting injured. Sometimes someone, like, mm. I don't know, you try and convince them, oh, deload's a really productive thing to do or something, or like taking a rest day or whatever. And they're just like, no, nah, I'm going to go through. And then they learn their lesson um, and maybe get an injury. And then they're like, oh, now, now I'm convinced by this. But yeah, it's unfortunate it has to go that way. I was actually going to ask, do you have a particular chapter within the book that was your favorite or that you kind of were, you know, like enjoyed writing the most? Productivity, because I think the diet chapter is the best. Like it's the most researched, it has the most references. It's, well, I'm the, it's the closest thing to my main expertise. So I think that the, the diet chapter is like ob objectively, if you can in, in some way objectify this, um, the, the best chapter, but the productivity chapter I enjoyed the most in part because I think it's also the most well-written and it has more stories and quirky things and a lot of things that were new to me. So the diet stuff was more things, writing up things that I knew and the productivity chapter was more actually learning about these things and trying them myself and then writing them up. And that's generally what I like. That's also the articles I publish. I generally don't write about things that most people know. That's also why I'm, I have sort of a reputation of being controversial and always having the For sure. the alternate views. Uh, but that's because those are the things that interest me. And I remember one time I had to write an article um, for a Dutch uh, institute, Fits on the Fables, and they would just assign you certain topics. And there were a few ones that I had to do, like energy balance, um, does fasted cardio burn more fat, and just explaining that fat oxidation rates are not the same as um, fat loss, like some very, very basic things. And it took me so long to write them. And when I finished them, I'm like, anybody could have written this. This is not a great article, you know? Like, you, you could have just picked some intern or whatever to, to write this article. It would have been equally good. I didn't contribute anything special to this. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't learn anything. So that's just not my thing. And uh, with the book, I actually, I really like that because a lot of things that um, I did like and a lot of things I haven't written about or published uh, anything about before. So I, I really liked it. That's also the main reason I did it as more of a side product and it went better than I expected. Like, yeah. I think day two after launch, it hit number 15 in applied psychology and Amazon's bestseller list. And that's global. So that basically, that puts it up there with Jordan Peterson, Daniel Kahneman, Epic. those kind of offers. Yeah, so that's, you know, really cool to see. And then later the reviews started coming in. A lot of people DM me. Uh, lots of Instagram stories or people reading the book now and actually learning most of my clients say they've got a lot of useful things out of it. So it's, it's really cool to get that feedback because, you know, you're working on something for three years, kind of in silence alone. And well, you write it up and at some point it's done and you, you haven't really got much feedback or anything. I haven't posted about these things and now it all comes together. Yeah. I can see it being really re rewarding working on a project for so long though and then getting that kind of feedback it kind of makes it all the short term it's like one of those things I guess like in the short term it feels like oh what, should I be doing this but then in the long run you kind of get that feedback and I think at least for me personally it's refreshing to have something that isn't just like 
fitness and nutrition and everything because mm-hmm. there's loads of well in our little niche at least there's a lot of good ones out there already so it's kind of nice to have something that's a bit different it's a little bit refreshing because you can get a little bit bombarded by the same sort of things all the time the same topic so i mean we can all want to be more productive so it's it's nice to hear that yeah actually i think it's it's also one of those things that almost anyone into fitness will also be into these things because the yep. book is mostly about self-development like being more productive, better diet adherence. There's a chapter on making your workouts less effortful, which I think most of our core audiences don't really need that much, but it's still, you know, if you can make it less effortful, why not? And if you're feeling down some period, then you can use it. And general knowledge about motivation. And I think a lot of general interesting psychology that most people find interesting because most people are interested in learning how their own mind works. You know, it's actually a big part of the earlier chapters I show research that people are often not aware of why they think what they think or why they feel what they feel. Like one famous experiment is when you have people approached, uh, males approached by a female interviewer that's regarded as attractive. And she approaches people either on a shaky suspension bridge or before people go on the bridge. And they find that the actual interview was just uh, for show. It didn't, didn't really matter. But what they did is um, they, ma- they monitored how many of the male interviewers afterwards would call for follow-up questions. And I think afterwards, they also they had some measure of um, um, arousal or attraction. How many of them would also, I think, in the follow-up, in a follow-up interview, would suggest that the female interviewer was hitting on them. And they found that the general trend in the answers was that when on the bridge, a lot more people thought the conversation they had with the woman was like sexually oriented and they would call for follow-up questions. <laughs> Whereas before it was just, it's a regular interview. And of course that doesn't make any sense, right? Why would the place at which you have an interview matter? But what happens is if you're on a shaky suspension bridge, you're aroused, you're, you're afraid. So you have all these hormones going through your body and then you misinterpret those feelings as you attribute them, it's a misattribution effect, psychologists call it, you attribute them to the interviewer because <laughs> it's it's staring you in the face, literally. So you think that must be the cause of my feelings. And we also tend to think that other people feel the same way we do. So if we are aroused, then we, we're often inclined to think that others are too. In fact, there's research that if you yourself are aroused because people have empathy, like you have um, large pupils, then other people's pupils will also become larger. And that's sort of a self, um, self-fulfilling effect, basically. Not not complete self-fulfilling prophecy, but it does enhance each other. And that's also the secret of candlelit dinners. You make people's pupils larger, and you see that, and both people interpret it as being more aroused, oh, wow. even though it's just the light. Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. That's super interesting. It's making me think, weirdly enough, I don't know if you know anything about this, but there's something to do with like people sneezing. And if one person sneezes, oh no, yawning, it's yawning. If one person yawns, it tends to lead to other people yawning. I don't know if you know anything about that. Yeah, I actually, I actually read up on that. And I think there's not a consensus, a bit like laughter, like humor. There's also not a consensus. There are like three right. competing theories of what explains it. And with yawning, um, there's one theory about oxygenation of the brain, that if we're sleepy in a scenario where we think we should be paying attention, 
then yawning is basically a way to get a big influx of oxygen to the brain and keep us sharp. So it's basically uh, the brain saying, don't fall asleep. And it kind of makes sense because you often yawn when you're you know, sort of supposed to be paying attention or you're still doing something, but you are tired. Whereas if you're just in bed about to fall asleep, it's not like you're constantly yawning no. until you <laughs> pass out, you know? So that would be annoying. And the other theory is that uh, because people are, have empathy, most people, if you're, unless you're a sociopath, then yawning is basically, they have that effect and it also is like contagious, socially contagious. So other people yawn as well and you get a group reaction, a bit like the herd becoming shaken up when some, when one person in the herd, for example, is becomes low, low key aroused is in terms of maybe in their peripheral field, they spot a tiger, but it doesn't enter the subconscious part, the conscious part of our brain, but it does make you yawn because there's now this, this thing that you need to um, pay attention and then others start yawning as well. And everyone is a bit more alert. So it's, it's like a very complex social thing that we do, um, but it does seem to have some functions. I'm not surprised that you had read up on that, actually. That's why I asked. So that's super interesting. Uh, and the book sounds great. I was The last thing I want to ask you about the book was whether or not in the kind of diet chapter, was there anything in that that you feel like most people don't really think of it as something that can help them diet, where it's just like very often overlooked? Uh, there, there are a lot of like quirky things. Probably the most quirky thing of the whole book, I think, is... Uh, free glutamate effects. There are a few recent studies, I think two years ago it started, that soups flavored with MSG improve our self-control and have people eat less at a buffet than if they have the exact same soup without MSG in it. And MSG is the, you know, the Chinese flavor enhancer yeah. that a lot of people fear. It's super, um, it's super safe. There's tons of research it's even less ambiguous, I think, than artificial sweeteners, depending on which one you look at. It's, I mean, it's it's sodium and glutamate in water, basically. That's that's MSG. So if you're consuming salt and glutamate is an, is an amino acid, you could, if you're on a high-protein diet, you get lots of it, but usually not in free form. And when it's in free form, like in MSG, or in certain foods like tomatoes and mushrooms, your taste receptors in the mouth can already detect it. And glutamate functions as a neurotransmitter, which seems to have certain effects of activating parts of our brain that we are using for self-control. So it seems, and that's what the research finds, that when you have free glutamate being registered in your mouth, you actually become, it's like a willpower boost. Hmm. And I do notice for myself that um, tomato soup and mushrooms, I happen to eat a lot of those because I have a three-minute tomato soup recipe on my website, which is super, super easy to make. And I'm pretty lazy when I'm alone. I, so I make a lot of those things that are just, it's like a solid meal, uh, nutritious, satiating, low calorie, et cetera. But I don't want to spend too much, uh, wanna, don't want to go full gourmet chef on my meals, you know? <laughs> so I eat quite a lot of that. And I eat a lot of sushi and a lot of sushi um, appetizers are mushrooms, like here at shiitake or shimeji. And I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil now. So basically I have that quite a lot. And I do notice that per volume or per calorie, those foods tend to, satiate more, I think, than other foods. And there's also research on mushrooms that mushrooms are actually more satiating than uh, protein, both per uh, protein, but also even per food volume. Just 100 grams of mushroom was found to be more satiating than 100 grams of beef, which, you know, the beef is five plus yeah. times the caloric 
uh, density and much higher in protein. So that's pretty uh, amazing. It might have something to do with the, the free, high free glutamate content that are, that's in most mushrooms. So that's one of the things that I actually, when I read these studies, I was like, it, it almost sounds like a biohack, you know, something that's yeah. like, doesn't, doesn't quite sound right. There are a few of those things that are kind of stranger than fiction, but actually true. That's super interesting, especially because I always associated MSG with being something used to make food tastier and for you to propel you yes. to eat more, not kind exactly. of almost the opposite. That's a good point. Yeah. So it's it's all the more interesting and powerful that these studies find decreased energy intake yeah. rather than increased because generally, as you say, higher palatability foods increase energy intake. If you salt food, and that's also why certain flavors, for example, it creates a big disconnect between energy content and energy intake because while you're adding calories, you're also making it more palatable and often it makes the texture a bit more moist you know less just dry food and it's easier to just get it down so not only do you consume more calories but you also end up eating more food whereas with msg there's a clear opposite effect that's crazy can you buy msg like can you like and you can put it on your food i've, I've tried it yeah i have to say that i don't notice much of it myself okay. but my diet is pretty high in, in umami flavor generally speaking so and i eat like a lot of tomato soup and mushrooms i eat quite regularly so I have quite a lot of glutamate and even free glutamate in my diet. I also don't actually notice that much taste difference, but I right. also like to use a lot of herbs. I eat pretty salty. So, you know, uh, most people do. Uh, but most people also say that it takes some experimentation because okay. if you add too little, you don't notice it. But if you add a lot, it becomes less tasty. It just weird like yeah it's hard to describe because umami most people even don't don't even learn in, in western school systems that that is a taste you know it's like yeah. it's sweet sour umami is also one taste you actually have taste receptors for umami so it's interesting that this a taste that we barely know anything about uh, yeah. but you can evoke so potently with this thing that in asia is super popular but in the west it's mostly just seen as some feared compound yeah. that makes chinese people ill <laughs> <laughs> and i mean uh, yeah i don't know i don't know enough about uh, like chinese and their kind of obesity rates and everything i don't know how they relate but i don't know um you probably do but i was going to say that the mushrooms is interesting i don't know where i heard it but i remember whenever i think of mushrooms it was like mushrooms are nature's marshmallow because marshmallows mm -hmm. are like big and airy and like there's not many calories for what you think it would be so they're mushrooms and tomatoes they obviously good if you can't get your uh, msg <laughs> added they're good ones for yeah. dieting anyway yeah most people tomatoes probably more <laughs> like mushrooms as as nature's marshmallows it's like bordering on false advertising you know <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah for sure v vaguely in texture but uh, flavor wise not quite yeah i think it was literally it must just be the volume the volume of it because yeah. yeah i mean it kind the, of looks like it i guess certain mushrooms in like. some ways <laughs> yeah the texture is <laughs> quite different even um actually just to, on the volume is great on them until you if you cook them then they basically turn to absolutely nothing <laughs> that's the only problem yeah, yeah. then they're still pretty satiating it's um i really find that they they they, they fill you up pretty well that's awesome. you have to eat pretty large volumes though like most people they just have like a tiny portion Right. Which I think is also the case with fruit. Fruit's really underrated. A lot of people think like, well, if I eat fruit, I just eat more. And then what they're thinking of is snacking on an apple in between meals. But if you eat four apples with a meal, that is really yeah. satiating. 
So, and berries too, like certain meals, I have like a kilo or, uh, and in contest prep, sometimes two kilos of strawberries. Wow. That's just with a meal. And I'm actually like fruit a lot because it's so easy to make. And if you're in a spot where you have good, affordable strawberries, then that's just a super easy way to get very nutritious, tasty food. Um, but a lot of people think underrated fruit because they, they have this idea that you can't have large portions of fruit or it's not supposed to be with a meal. But yeah. actually, for a lot of people, fruit is a more palatable um, version of vegetables. And most yeah. of the ex most awesome vegetables that we know, like tomatoes, are actually technically a fruit. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, I was actually, that's a question. Uh, I have some questions to get to, but I actually have another selfish question. It's always interested me in terms of fiber intake, because you, I know you're kind of, that's one of the things you're promoting mm -hmm. for satiation in your diet phase, which makes complete sense. I guess for some people you could go excess on fiber. Is that juice? Do you, I don't think the literature, from what I've seen, the literature is not particularly clear on it but i know like you can have too much fiber like anything uh, i don't mm -hmm. know if you know kind of what's your, what's your kind of maximum fiber intake i think there's not such a thing as a maximum fiber intake per se but almost everyone has some fault map intolerances i think or some degree of fault map intolerances so these are fermentable fibers certain types of fermentable fibers that are in certain foods like apples have polyols and most people or many people find that if you eat four apples Another reason why that may not go down well. It can have a laxative kind of effect, a bit like if you take too much magnesium. So gluten is, is also a fault map. So, it, you know, a lot of people think that they're gluten intolerant or um, there's even research showing that people that think they're gluten intolerant are actually wheat intolerant. And more generally, they're intolerant to the fault maps that are in weed. So a lot of people have some of these, like if you get very gassy from certain beans, for example, also very common, like there are a lot of these common wisdom things, certain foods make you gassy or make you constipated. That's often due to FODMAPs. And lactose intolerance is also a FODMAP intolerance. Fructose intolerance, same thing. So there are a lot of these intolerances that people know about, but they don't know that it groups together in, in FODMAP intolerances and a lot of foods have FODMAPs. So very often I find that when people say these things and also a lot of people that say they like keto or carnivore diets a lot and their digestion is better than ever which should not be the case if you go zero fiber yeah i find that they often have very significant fodmap intolerances so for them if they eat these foods for their fiber rather than having better digestion they actually get super constipated they get gassy they get bloated um and i think also with bodybuilders you know lactose intolerance that's why people thought dairy was fattening because in like non-Northwest European countries, lactose intolerance is still really common. Whereas in Scandinavia, if you talk about lactose intolerance, it's a bit like, like, we, like gluten intolerance five years ago, where people were like, is that really a yeah. thing? <laughs> so I think that's, um, I think that, that usually is, is the main issue, finding out which fibers or rather which fault maps you tolerate rather than the fiber intake per se. That's really interesting, actually. Oh, that makes a lot of sense as well, because I think, yeah, quite often people end up having, like you said, like loads of apples or something, but there might be something, another fruit that's not a FODMAP that they can have that much of. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Awesome. Uh, should we get to, I'll get to some of the questions from uh, the Good. listeners. So the first one is from Brett McGee. He's asked, uh, I've seen a lot of naturals make progression in either weight or reps with moderate volume, say 15 to 20 sets 
per muscle per week. But when they reduce their weekly volumes to say eight to 12 sets per muscle per week, they seem to be making even better progress both visually and according to the logbook. I've long assumed that the higher the volume, the better as long as you can recover from it. Is it possible that people could make better gains from lower volumes compared to higher ones, even if they could progress performance on the higher volumes? It is, yes. And there's direct research now. In the past years, we have a couple of studies, for example, of people doing different training volumes with different legs or leg extensions. And that show that different people have a different volume sweet spot, different optimum. And for some people, that's actually low. However, there are also the factors of putting more effort into your training, which you often see if people go lower volume. And then, especially if you're cutting different exercises, you can give more effort to the ones that you do. There's also a bit of a tapering effect, at least the first week or so, when you cut volume, then you know you have some peaking effect. Um, and I think that um, muscle growth, generally research finds that muscle growth is more responsive to volume than strength. So for strength, in the last weeks of for a powerlifting competition, for example, I often cut basically all auxiliary, auxiliary, auxiliary exercises from a powerlifters program because they're realist, realistically not going to add anything to their 1RMs in the squat uh, bench deadlift, whereas they do add fatigue. So they're more of a long-term investment that mainly helps via muscle growth, but short-term, they really don't do anything for the powerlifts directly. Uh, not that you could do better with just doing the powerlifts, at least. So I think for, for muscle growth, it is generally more true that more volume is better as long as you can recover. But if you look at the general adaptation curve, like you have fatigue, you recover from that, you're back to baseline, and then you supercompensate. If you supercompensate, you, you can still have different levels of supercompensation, and there's like a sweet spot. So the fact that you are progressing does not mean you could progress better because you could be just just super compensating but if you had rested a bit longer then you would have actually kept super compensating if you had like an extra rest day or if you didn't dig the recovery hole that deep so with lower volume you might actually be that you were ending up here and now you're letting full super compensation take place so you're actually getting better results and it's also possible that you're way at the end where you're just barely recovering and if you cut some volume then well you actually get to the point where um or in this case, if, you, or if you're right at the end, it would actually be that you have too much rest in between your sessions because you're actually detraining already a little bit. And then if you push the volume higher, then you go up to the peak. So if you were in the first phase, then you would need uh, less volume or frequency. And if you're at the end, you would actually need more. So even the fact that you are progressing does not mean you're progressing optimally. Yeah, I think it's... That was very well described. And actually, in my experience, the thing you mentioned at the start there was when you have kind of less to do, you put more effort towards it. I found that mm -hmm. for a lot of people in this kind of scenario where they've gone from higher volumes because they think more is better. And in fact, because they're doing so much, they kind of hold themselves back subconsciously. And they don't quite mm -hmm. push themselves maybe to the relative intensities that they could or should to see better results and like less allows them to do it. So yeah, what you said there, and I guess in, in that regard where you talked about, would you recommend in this case, if someone was doing these higher volumes and they wanted to try lower ones, is there a certain amount of time you'd recommend like to at least see uh, whether it was actually better? 
Yeah, I think you would want some time to go over it. Definitely more than a week or two, because then it may just be the taper effect or... Yeah. Uh, and it's also just hard in general to say. Plus, you actually want to measure progress over, say, eight weeks and look at the percentage gain, percentage gain in strength. Because I find that a lot of people, they're just not reading their data correctly. Sometimes yeah. even, even blatantly when they say, well, I'm training less often now, for example, this is a conversation I recently had with a client. They say, actually, I find that if I train only two or three times a week, I have an easier time making progress. And it may be easier like mentally, but when you look at his log, you'd see that the progress procession was basically stable. It was pretty linear, like one rep extra or one increment of weight extra. And it was pretty steady. But he could do that twice as often, and it would be harder, of course, but he would progress twice as fast. So procession, yeah. this, the progress was the same, and maybe it felt a little bit better even, like it felt easier to make that, that to get that one extra rep. But with higher frequency, if you push yourself more, you would basically get double the rate of progression, but it would feel more effortful. So that's also a thing. When you uh, reduce the volume, it may feel you know, less effortful to get that jump in weight, but you actually want to look at the percentage increase after, say, eight weeks and compare that with before and even then it's still tricky you know because things change and the percentage increase for any exercise will taper off on its own due to diminishing returns so it's actually really hard to to just based on purely your own log see what what works better it's so true i think the longer i've been kind of training and the, the best results i've seen is when i've stuck to what i know like the principles are i know mm -hmm. they're pretty right I don't, we don't know what optimal is so there's no point worrying too much about it and then just going and being consistent and that's where i've seen the best results rather than like you said like focusing every time like oh could i be doing this could i be doing this because then it kind of throws you off a little bit whereas when you just yeah. like you focus on the thing that you know is pretty much right you end up just kind of you may end up in the same place or with less stress or actually seeing results because you're not switching between all the time or something so Definitely. i think that's well said and the, the more you do that, the harder it is to actually monitor your progression. Because the more yeah. things you, you switch up, the more variables you change, the harder it is to pinpoint which variable cost what difference. For sure. Cool. We get to uh, the next question, which is from Andrew Potacek. He has asked, how much time should you allow after eating before training, even if it's a protein shake or simple sugars? Does it affect blood circulation? Um doesn't affect it uh, and digestion sl slows if your post-workout meal is it does, is it less effective is your post-workout meal less effective as it's stacked on top of your pre-workout meal slowing digestion of that meal too hopefully that made some sort of sense <laughs> yeah i think it, it mostly refers to to an old myth that if you are um oh, well for there, there's two things for one a lot of people just don't train well on a full stomach and that's not really actually a digestive process. What happens is that the body regulates itself very well. So when you start exercising and you basically go in fight or flight mode, like more, more adrenaline, higher sympathetic nervous system activity, and it puts a lower key on your digestion. And there's this idea that then there's no blood going there. Well, it's just on a lower key and there's still ample blood flow for the process that the body wants to do. Also for the, the brain, this idea that Actually, I discussed this in the book that um, there's an old myth that if you eat, you become more lethargic afterwards because there's now blood going through the digestive system yes. instead of to the brain. It's a complete myth, and it would be extremely maladaptive if the human <laughs> body functioned that way. You know, it's it's a nervous system effect. It's a neural effect called postprandial somnolence. But 
And that's probably the reason probably that people don't like training on a full stomach because it puts you in more rest and digest mode and you feel more like hanging on the couch. Because the body's like success. You know, you've eaten, maybe now go look at procreating yourself. And uh, that's basically all we care about. So definitely don't go exerting yourself for no reason. <laughs> uh, but that often is what we actually do want to do if we go to the gym. So I think um, that, that that plays a big role. It's just the, the mental effect. Like you can perform very well. The digestion occurs fine. It's mostly just unpleasant to train on a full stomach up to the point that you actually vomit. Then it becomes a physical problem. Uh, but it, if, if you feel okay, you can train basically. And the other issue is basically nutrient timing related. If you were fasted before, I would give some time between the pre-workout meal and the workout because it's not that you ate, it's that your body has specifically the glucose and the amino acids in circulation in the blood available for the muscles to take up. And that takes, even with a whey shake, about an hour. So if you're training early in the morning, for example, I generally recommend getting your first meal in basically as soon as possible so that you you get in the state where post-workout, when there's mTOR activity and the body is basically aggregating the signals for muscle growth, it's like, oh, we have high insulin levels, we have high amino acid levels, we have a lot of stimulus from the workout for muscle growth, it checks all the boxes, and then you get maximum muscle protein synthesis. That's the ideal scenario. So then it would actually matter. But in the context of if you're eating four plus meals a day, and they're space pretty equally apart, especially if there are no more than five hours between pre and post workout, it doesn't really matter that much. Lovely. That's nice and practical. And I think most of the listeners are probably doing exactly what you said there, where they're eating like four meals a day, at least where mm -hmm. they're relatively evenly spaced. So um, awesome. We'll get to the next one, which is from Nicholas Luca Ricciardi. Um, and he says, does Menno still believe eating three protein feedings is enough to maximize hypertrophy? Probably. I think two is most likely suboptimal. Three is likely very, at least very close to optimal. And four is almost certainly enough. That's basically the, the stance based on the data. I think there's there's no concrete evidence, both mechanistically timing-wise, and especially not in actual empirical studies. And especially when you factor in the research on intermittent fasting, that you need more than three meals a day. But mechanistically, you know, there, there is some trends. If you eat three meals a day, the timing definitely becomes more important. Like if you train fasted in the morning and then you have your first meal at noon, for example, that's probably no way now. But if you have one meal and then two hours later a workout and then two more meals, two more meals after the workout, that's, that's probably good. I guess you'd recommend kind of front ending, middle, and then like back ending almost. Yeah. Yeah. You want to cover, basically cover the fast. That's an important yeah. principle to keep in mind. If you have a long fast, especially if that's in your anabolic window, when you're probably building muscle, you want to fuel that, the upcoming fast. Out of interest, do you have like a maximum, would you say, like, I don't know if someone's spreading their protein between like 10 feedings, do you think there's a mm -hmm. like a maximum number where it's like, you're not, I don't know, stimulating leucine enough or what have you? Um, in terms of muscle growth, I'm not sure if it would matter. There's some research on the leucine threshold, but there is all of debate about whether that's really a hard threshold effect. In older people, it, it does sort of seem that way with anabolic resistance. But in young people, it, it may just be an effect that it's not detectable, the rise in protein synthesis. So maybe if you go to absurd 
um, levels. But I think purely for muscle growth, no. However, there is actually quite some research showing that even from six meals on, there are some perturbations in glucose homeostasis. So your blood sugar levels are more variable across the day because there's basically no downtime. Like they're always, you're always spiking it. And satiety signaling is not as optimal, but that may actually be beneficial if you're bulking, which I find it's this, this idea that was popular so long that you need six meals a day when cutting as it's interesting because my experience so very clearly tells me that's not ideal. And it's so much better to cut meals rather than add meals when you're cutting. And if I'm bulking, at some point, I really get to the point where I just can't do it in three meals. I have to add a fourth meal. And then it's much more manageable. So this it's funny that even some, some bro wisdom um, just very directly uh, contradicts experience. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. For sure. No, that's that's a big one. I, I know I'm the same when I'm on a lot of food. Like having like three meals that are over a thousand calories each just feels like, I don't know, I'm like hungry before it and then horrendously stuffed. I just wouldn't want to mm. do that. Whereas it's way easier spreading that out kind of like volume, I guess, like you want to spread out your training volume, <laughs> spread out your calories. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The next question is from Scott, uh, Scott, sorry, Scott Murray McDonald. And he said, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the constrained energy model. Uh, I think it's real. This uh, basically the constrained energy expenditure model. Uh, there's now even some quite hard data from a paper in, in Nature from two years ago, I think, uh, showing that at some point of energy expenditure, the body is basically at what's called its metabolic scope. And it seems that the, the true metabolic scope is about 2.5 times BMR, which is a lot. So you don't normally get there very easily. But before that, there is quite some research showing that especially low intensity activity sometimes does not actually increase energy expenditure. So you're more active, but you're not expending more energy. And it seems that what happens is and also, anecdotally, I'd say that many people can feel this. If you're doing cardio, for example, afterwards, you're tired and you sub subconsciously reduce the um, energy expenditure during low intensity movements like daily life. So a cl classic example is you normally you're pretty active throughout the day. You, you know, you're, you're, you're up and about in your house, but you, know, you do a cardio session afterwards. You just want to, you know, lie on the couch and Netflix. And that basically undoes much of the energy expenditure of the cardio session. So there are a couple of studies that show adding more cardio sessions does not actually result in any additional fat loss. Like it's pretty clear that if you go from nothing to some exercise, most people lose some fat, though even not always, but just there is a strong trend. But at a certain point, that trend basically disappears for low intensity movement. And fortunately, strength training does not suffer from this, which is another reason that strength training Actually, there are now multiple papers showing that per minute of exercise, strength training is probably even more effective than cardio for purely for fat loss because you're because of multiple reasons. And one is constrained energy expenditure. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think it's 
I, I, the fact is it's super high. So I guess like it's for most people listening, it, it's not a concern mm. for them. Uh, but I, I wonder, it's somewhat related to kind of the energy flux kind of uh, theory in terms of having the same size deficit, but eating more food tends to provide better results. I don't know if you have any feelings surrounding that, if you like people to have more food generally during like cutting phases. Yeah, it does make it easier. Um, but this theory does, or this the constraint energy uh, expenditure research, does point towards basically a limit of the, the I think, G-flux is what it was called. Okay. This, um, I think John Berardi, at least that's the first I read about it, called it G-flux or something, um, puts a limit on how much you can get to the same energy surplus or deficit, but just increasing the energy intake and expenditure. And sometimes it's actually faster than, than you would think, especially with low-intensity cardio. So I also noticed myself, which at the time I was like, I, I barely believed it, when I'm in contest prep, and I think because the, the mechanism is very similar to adaptive formogenesis, so if you have an adaptive metabolism, it's probably more. If you're very lean, the effect is, is probably stronger. And if you already have a high activity level and you're doing strength training. So I did daily strength training. I was very lean, basically contest lean at that point already. And I was at 1,900 calories. And then I added 20 minutes of daily cardio. Nothing. Zero effect. Absolutely zilch. Like I was at a fat loss plateau. Nothing happened. I went down to 1,800 calories just 100 calories, and I would see gradual fat loss. I went back to 1900 with the cardio, nothing. And I was like, this, well, I hate cardio, so I was like, well, whatever, I'll take it. <laughs> but um, it, it, it's it, it's pretty crazy. That, yeah. um, and now, well, now we have some research showing that, you know, it probably is, is a real thing. And I've heard it from many people. You're saying calories in, calories out is wrong. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> it, it's definitely true, but it changes the energy expenditure. Yeah. There's just the energy expenditure. Basically, the model is that at some point of increased energy expenditure, your body starts looking for ways to decrease it at other times, even if you're not aware of it. Yeah, it's interesting. Even uh, I'm using, not that you can see it right now, but a weighted vest during my prep right now. Mm -hmm. And I have said to my girlfriend at various times when we're walking around, I'm like, I'm definitely avoiding doing things because I'm wearing this weighted vest that I'd normally be right. doing <laughs> because it's just that cumbersome and like, like you just can't get around it. Like there's a point where your body is just, mm -hmm. it's too good at kind of conserving energy and keeping you like home, well, fighting for homeostasis essentially, I think. So it's yeah, that's interesting. super interesting. I think wearing a weighted vest is sort of like the gravitostat theory. Yes. Is one of the things I'm, I'm very, very interested in. I'm not very convinced yet about it, but research is super super interesting and i think that's a field where in the coming years we'll, we'll have much more data and it might be actually it might be big or it might be you know just nothing i mean at least wearing a weight as fast it just increases energy expenditure yeah so and i think it's i'm inclined to say it would be a way that it doesn't reduce there would be not that much compensation like you I mean, as you say there, there probably is some even if just mentally yeah but i'd be inclined to think that it's a way rather than cardio, which is just you're very directly expending cognitive effort. Um, it, may, it may be a way that it's it's somewhat circumvents this constraint energy expenditure. I'll say thus far, uh, and there's multiple things that go into this prep being the easiest, but it's been by far like I'm mm -hmm. essentially contest ready in some ways. Like I'm saying, I'm ninety ninety five percent of the way there. 
work. Yeah, they're, they're coming. Um, it's whether or not I can get them from the rear. Uh, so yeah, the the weighted vest is part of this strategy and it's definitely mm-hmm. seems to have helped. But yeah, I've got it wrapped around my waist at the moment, not right over the shoulders. <laughs> uh, it definitely takes some getting used to, but it's super interesting and it's been great kind of practically applying it. I was, I'm somewhat similar to you, Menno, in terms of like I adapt quite quickly. So mm-hmm. it's definitely helped me diet on more calories. My, my carbs haven't come under 300 grams. So that's pretty decent, like 2,600 nice. calories in my low days. So it's, it's quite nice not to have to go mm-hmm. to the like 2000s or below. So I'm hoping I'd never have to go there. <laughs> yeah, it does suck. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So we'll get to the next question. And this one is from uh, George Lavelle. He says, is stretch under load, sorry, if stretch under load is important for hypertrophy, does being flexible inhibit growth because full range of motion does not provide a significant stretch to a really mobile individual muscle? Interesting. That's, um, so I think the, uh, the main thing to realize is that being more flexible does not actually normally mean your muscles are longer. There's a lot of research now that shows that, especially stretching type of training, it does not make your muscles longer. The, the adaptation is not morphological. There's actually very little that happens in the tissues at all, especially long-term. But what happens is that the nervous system becomes more permissive of letting the muscle lengthen. So it's stretch tolerance development, basically. And in that sense, it's still good to have the extra range of motion. But for mo- mostly people that are more flexible, do they actually get more range of motion? Like if you can squat deeper, yes. If you can do a Romanian deadlift, you actually get, you can bend down further, yes. But during say a dumbbell bench press, it's, you know, there's people get the same maximum. And then you get to the point of hypermobility. If you're doing a, a skull crusher or something, well, you can hyperextend the elbow. There's, there's that, but probably that part doesn't even do much to begin with, but you're not getting more stretch. You know, there's just, this is, this is the limit. And if, if you're like Mike Isratel, then the limit is actually reduced <laughs> because your biceps are so huge, um, which is interesting. I didn't thought that was possible because um, it seems almost maladaptive. I guess <laughs> n- nature is just not used to being that massive. Yeah. But um, yeah, I don't. I don't think it's it's a problem. It's the main uh, take home message. Fantastic. Cool. Uh, so the next one is from Jason Markell, and he said. I'd love to, actually, we may have covered this. I'd love to hear Menno's opinion on how long one should maintain. Okay, we haven't covered it. Maintain before entering a cut or mini cut. Maintain before you do a cut. So it's like you bulk and then you maintain before you cut. Uh, based on, the answer is the same either way. Uh, I don't think maintaining ever really serves much purpose. Maybe, basically, maybe mentally. And... Some of my clients do end up at maintenance because when I switch from cutting to bulking, I'm generally conservative because most people are okay with one week at maintenance, but they're not okay with one week of immediately getting fat and then mistrusting the whole bulking process. So um, I think you, you want to be conservative in estimating how much you can increase energy intake. And if you accidentally end up at maintenance, that's okay. But actively targeting maintenance, I think... Um, rarely does anything. And that was also the, the recent diet break study also indirectly looked at that where they had a maintenance phase at the end, I think. And they looked at the data with and without the maintenance phase after the cut. And the results were basically the same, which again suggests that the maintenance phase doesn't do much, like maybe mentally, but yeah. 
uh, not really physically. I'm interested. Right. To, Sorry. Mm -hmm. It is good to notice that a lot, there's a big distinction with these things, I think, between contest prep and the rest. So for the rest, it's like a die break or uh, a maintenance week. I think if you're on contest prep, these things make a lot more sense if you have the time and you just feel like it, it helps you because by definition, your, your goal is not sustainable. You know that you're going to get to a certain level of leanness that you're not going to maintain afterwards. But if you need that kind of stuff to get to, say, 10% body fat as a guy, then I think you're going to have a very tough time getting there and maintaining that for you know the next decade. Awesome. No, I like that differentiation because that's part of what we covered in our, re I think it was a refeed roundtable actually with yourself, Jackson mm -hmm. and everyone, which was actually a really great discussion. So if people haven't checked that out, we definitely dig deep into that. That was, it was something I was going to ask was uh, the idea of kind of like a lower volume period to kind of resensitize. That seems to be something that within, mm -hmm. I guess, our niche, it's like it's not something that's been really closely studied and like there's some bits of evidence that we can pick apart and there seems to be like people on either side i don't know where you land with that if you feel like there is anything to have an extended period of like maybe even at like maintenance volumes mm -hmm. or what have you to then kind of resensitize yourself to grow better afterwards i don't think it works i think it the original id comes from a misinterpretation of a few studies where they looked at what happens when novice level trainees train for a certain amount of time and sometimes they have weeks off and sometimes they just keep training and they get very similar results. Well, for one, just it's a matter of statistical power. Like if you get one week off in a 32 week study or something, you know, how much worse are your gains really? Um, you know, can you, can you detect that difference? Especially in untrained individuals because they, they also won't lose muscle. And um, Secondly, it's what happens is we know that muscle memory is real. So if you have a period where you're not gaining as you could, basically, or even losing some gains, then afterwards it will pick up faster. But I don't think there's a supercompensation effect. Like the only research where we even see any supercompensation effect is, funny enough, with blood flow restriction training, where they train the crap out of muscle like twice a day for two weeks straight. And then afterwards, you can actually see that muscle growth continues. I think in one study, even three weeks, but it depended on the, the measurement instrument. So there was a lot of confounding with edema and you know, changes in water. Um, but I don't think you're going to get any massive hypersensitivity. I think the best case scenario is you get the same results as without, which in itself could be a reason to do it. You know, you, you less injury risk, et cetera, and you, you probably get similar results. But I do think in the end, you're, you're, you're not using some time that you could have spent just eking out a little bit more growth. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. I know there's yeah different thoughts behind it. Maybe I don't know if there's even enough to have a roundtable on it. But I know uh, James Krieger spoke spoke about it recently. He's kind of he he likes to modulate his volume a little bit more, and obviously Mike uh, likes to do these periods. Whereas I think you're more on the side of like Eric Helms, that kind of mm -hmm. camp where not really convinced that it's doing anything too much. So it's. It's one of those very in the weeds <laughs> concepts where we just, the yeah. reason it's debated is because there's not really a, a great amount of data. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think Greg published a, an article about it at some point where you basically oh, he did. put the theory. Uh, yeah. A long time so. ago. He put the theory forward that it does work to have these low volume phases. And I think, don't quote me on this, but I think he changed his mind on it. I think he did as well from what I've seen as well. Um, 
cool. So I think we've got time maybe for one more. Yep, um, sure. So let's get the next one. So this one is from uh, Scotography from Instagram. And he's asking, is it, I, I, I don't know what uh, footage he's watching, but he says, why is, sorry, why are his eccentrics so fast? Is there any benefit to slowing down more or even pausing some lifts? I think you do want to control it. I think that's the most important thing. Like I'm very explosive. You can also see that if I'm naturally pretty good at sports and everything. So I lift pretty explosively, which also means my eccentrics are pretty fast, but they are controlled. Like I could stop the movement at any point. And it also varies a bit per exercise. Um, so I think that is the, the important thing. Like generally research finds different durations of eccentrics don't change um, muscle growth because you're you're getting to the same endpoint basically. If you're resisting the same resistance and you're getting to the same level of fatigue, like repetition failure or one repetition failure or whatever. So in terms of muscle activation and fiber recruitment, most research finds yeah you just you get to the same endpoint whether you do it with slow eccentrics or um, long eccentrics it doesn't matter. There's one study that finds a bit of a trend for biceps curls by I think Pereira et al from Brazil, and they. Uh, they find that a one-second Scott curl eccentric was not as um, effective for muscle growth or a trend. It wasn't even significant, but it was a trend um, as a free second, I think. And I think if, you, if you're looking at that, like a one-second drop, especially if you instruct people to basically drop the weight relatively fast, then I think you're at the risk of just not resisting gravity at all. Like you're, yeah. you're just letting it drop. Also, with chin-ups... I had this actually when I got resulted in elbow injuries like 10, 10 plus years ago. Uh, like I would really dive bomb my squats and chin-ups. And that for one puts a lot of stress on the joints, but B, you're simply not resisting gravity. So in that point there, it's like there almost is no eccentric contraction. Yeah. I think that is the important thing, that there is an eccentric muscle contraction and it can be fast, but it has to be controlled. Fantastic. No, I think that's really well explained. Menno, thank you so much again for coming on My and pleasure. doing this Q&A. I think it's been really interesting. Uh, I want to make sure people know where they can pick up your book that we spoke about before uh, and learn more about you. Um, Amazon is currently, but probably the time this gets out, there's also an ebook and an audiobook almost certainly. Uh, it's all on cool. my website. If you go to menoensmons.com, I'll spam it right in your face. Because um, it's actually the only product I sell other than services. And... Um, you also see everything there. Uh, you can subscribe to my newsletter, get informed, social media, Instagram, Facebook. It's all there. Fantastic. Cool. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you once again, Menno, and we'll catch you soon. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site.
So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is gonna be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there, you can ask questions, but also you can you can lock your journey. There's also gonna be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.